The Art of Leadership Network. Two things. Number one, everybody has got resources sitting in the rows, the audience of their church. We did a, a study just in this last year. We looked at all of our clients and we looked at uh, a number of years. We, we collect data on everything, Carrie. And we found that looking across all sectors, all sizes, all these organizations that we've been serving for the last handful of years, that only 11% of the people in their donor files who have the capacity to give at a major donor level were actually doing so. Whoa. Everybody is, everybody's on the search, like outside their four walls for more major givers, but 89% opportunity already in their file. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Well, if you ever wanted to raise a little more money for your cause or your church, man, we're going to do a masterclass in that with Dan Clark today on how to raise more money for your church, how to handle high net worth donors, and why 89% of potential major givers don't give to their potential. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Today's episode is brought to you by the Art of Leadership Academy. Where do you turn for advice about church leadership and growth? Well, I host a community of really cool growth-minded leaders. I would love to get you access to all of my training programs and the online community. It's private at theartofleadershipacademy.com or just click the link in the description of this episode and by Overflow. With Overflow Plus Tap, your church can tap their phone against the seat back in front of them and be transported to the page of your choosing. Whether that's giving, digital connect card, or more, head to overflow.co slash carry to learn more or hit the link in the description. Well, Dan Clark is the CEO of Westfall Gold, a fundraising consultancy and experience design agency that serves organizations passionate about advancing the good. Westfall Gold has helped their clients raise more than $2 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars to fuel life transformation. And previously, Dan served for 15 years as a vice president at Convoy of Hope, now one of the largest charities in the United States, number 43 on the Forbes list, and in local church ministry before that. So we're going to dive into, well, all things finances. thought I would do a real deep dive with Dan on that because I hear from pastors all the time about how frustrating it is to talk about money. There's this divide that we tackle from time to time between business leaders and church leaders. And I know we have both groups listening. So I think you're going to learn a lot and hopefully have some really practical action steps to pull away from this as well. So question for you, where do you go to turn for advice about church leadership and growth? I mean, who do you turn to? Like personally, I've worked with dozens of coaches, mentors, and consultants personally over the years people who have helped me navigate important situations and decisions that I just simply needed advice on. Well, if you're looking for the same in your church, I want you to check out the Art of Leadership Academy. One of the comments I get most from people thinking about joining is, well, you know, I'm okay with your courses and with you, but I'm a bit hesitant. What is this community going to be like, right? Like if it's based like on any online community, I don't know. Well, I got to tell you, it's a community of growth-minded leaders creating a space for the good people on the internet. It's a place where you can tap into each other's wisdom and connect with the people that otherwise never would have crossed paths with you. And I promise you, the conversations are really encouraging and helpful. 
So here's an example. Matt and Brody both asked, I need to launch another service. Does anybody have any advice, resources, or best practices to share to make sure it goes smoothly and mistakes not to repeat? Thanks in advance. And guess what? People chimed in with advice about the impact it'll have on leadership, worship, with their best service time ideas, parking facility ideas, and a whole lot more. So congrats, Matt and Brody. Those are great challenges to have. So it's time to stop worrying and agonizing about these things. The next time your church starts getting stuck, simply open the app, and the answer is just a click or a DM away. And you can join today. Theartoflearershipacademy.com is where you need to go. You'll get instant access to an entire vault of online training programs and this private, exclusive online community. Again, that's theartoflearershipacademy.com or simply click the link in the description of this episode. Then one more question for you. What if church giving could look more like contactless payment in coffee shops and stores, you know, where you just tap your phone and card and boom, your payment is complete? Well, the answer is here. Overflow, the world's most powerful giving platform, has now reimagined giving once again with the Overflow Plus Tap technology. No more QR codes, no more typing in a giving page manually. With Overflow plus tap, your church can tap their phone against the seat back in front of them and be transported to the page of your choosing. That can be your giving page, your digital connect card, and more. So tap into the future of giving. See how Overflow plus tap can increase your engagement 50x compared to physical new guest cards or QR codes combined. Head to overflow.co slash carry. That's overflow.co slash C-A-R-E-Y. And now my conversation with Dan Clark. Dan, so glad to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Man, thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for uh, all you do through this channel to grow and invest in leaders. Grateful. Well, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to do it. Um, you know, one of the common denominators of every guest is that they're leaders in their own right, and leadership takes so many different forms and it morphs. When you look back on your life, was there a time in your childhood, your teen years, your young adult years, where either at the time or looking back on it now, you would be like, oh, I think I'm a leader. Like, when you look back on your yeah. life, when, when was that moment where maybe those gifts first emerged? Yeah, I don't know that there was a singular moment, but I do recall a a point in in my childhood. It was somewhere during my elementary years that I became aware of the fact that I had the gift of influence. Hmm. And the adults in my life, parents, teachers, coaches, they recognized that influence for what it was as a as a leadership gift. They gave language to it and also conveyed the responsibility that came with it. And I think um, definitely in my teenage years, maybe uh, kind of through college, uh, that that's chapter of life, it really I created a desire to steward uh, that gift well, and I, I became a student of leadership. I wanted to read every book I could get my hands on, attend every conference, and uh, I, I hope that's always true of me, that I'm a, I'm a lifelong, hungry learner when it comes to leadership. Um, I think it's John Maxwell who said, you know, great leaders aren't born, they're made. So mm -hmm. you start with something raw, and then hopefully you have others who will mentor and invest and shape you. And that's certainly my story, that um, everything that I do well as a leader is to the credit of those who have invested in me. And Everything I do poorly is because I'm thick-headed and I still have a lot to learn. 
aren't we all? Oh my yeah. gosh. You know, that's interesting. This is why I love the opportunity to do this show. 600 and some odd episodes in, we talked about leadership a lot. Maxwell, who you just mentioned, says leadership is influence, but I don't think I've ever talked to anybody who said when they were young, they realized they had the gift of influence. What did that look like in third grade or high school or whenever that first emerged? It's probably as simple as uh, the ability to persuade people. Mm -hmm. And that's a gift you can use for good or for evil. And uh, I suppose I've been guilty of both, certainly. But, uh, you know, learning to learning to shape that, uh, that skill set and, and leverage it in the best way so that you're, because there's a fine line between persuasion and manipulation. And we, we have very positive feelings about the one and very negative about the other. So, so let's drill down on that a little bit more. When you, when you see a leader with influence, um, what are the characteristics? This could be of your own life or of other people. I'm, I'm thinking back to a time in college And this is going to sound really weird, so I hope it comes out the right way. And it doesn't sound self-serving because it's not meant to be that way. But I remember a couple of classmates in first year college, first year university, said to me, when you walk into the room, the air changes. And of course, I'm totally not self-aware of that. I don't understand that. But they're just like, heads sort of snap in your direction. What is that? And I've heard that at different times. Like, is that what you're talking about? Or are you talking about something else? I think it can be that. Um, Hmm. We would use the line that leaders are a thermostat, not a thermometer. They do. They Mm -hmm. change the temperature in the room. Uh, I think that the, you know, the influence, it's, do you have followers? Do people follow you? you're, You're not a leader unless there are people who will follow you. And I think that's a a great mistake that a lot of young leaders make is they are so hungry for title, what title, what they think that's what they want. They're looking for that big title that is supposed to award them a measure of uh, respect. And um, I would encourage young leaders seek to become a person of influence. Title will follow. And frankly, title doesn't really even matter that much. If you are a person of influence, and you can be a leader of influence at any level of the organization that you work in, and that I think is what we really crave because you'll eventually end up in a place, stick with what you're doing long enough, have even a marginal success, your title will grow, You'll, you'll become vice president of this or that, but if you lack influence, you'll ultimately be unsatisfied. Hmm. Okay, so you went from being a vice president of Convoy of Hope, an organization I dearly love and a good partner of this podcast, incredible work, to now leading Westfall Gold. We had Bob Westfall on, oh, a couple hundred episodes ago when he was still leading (laughs) Westfall Gold. And um, I would be interested when you look at, you know, that leadership journey how did how did people rec- how did you steward that influence? How did people recognize that in you early on? Because you're still in your 40s, your CEO. Uh, like, yeah. talk about that. Yeah, uh, you know the the whole transition it, it occurred um, out of relationship. I was uh, Convoy of Hope is a client of Westfall Gold and has been for almost 10 years now. And in that uh, course of time, I developed a friendship with Bob Westfall, who you mentioned. And uh, I think Bob 
he alluded to it. Uh, you know, he'd be excited to have me on the team, and you know, loved Convoy uh, very much, and didn't want to didn't want to hurt Convoy or steal employees from a client. But uh, a few years ago, he's at the point where he's ready to step into retirement, and he approached me, uh, asked if I would pray about becoming his successor. And um, I was in a season where a number of opportunities were starting to surface to be the president of this or CEO of that, kind of next level opportunities, which was exciting. And, um, you know, I really hadn't given a lot of thought to uh, Westfall Gold, um, really not to any of them. I I had no desire to leave. Uh, My heart was so committed and still very committed to the work of Convoy of Hope. But uh, anyways, I, I had a reluctance to even consider anything, but it just sensed like God was uh, about to send us into a new chapter, a new season of leadership. And I was talking to my coach, executive coach, counselor, uh, his name is Jack, and I was sharing with him about some of these opportunities and uh, this one, Westfall Gold. I said, but Bob's probably never going to offer me a job because I've thanked him over the years. Please don't offer me a job. Uh, I want to stay focused on my, my calling at Convoy. And uh, Jack kind of got my face. He said, Dan, you know, you're, you're playing God with your own life. You're trying to control the script. And he, uh, he said, you need to give Bob permission to say whatever he wants to say. And so I, I eventually did. And uh, a number of months later, Bob came and expressed his, uh, his offer. And again, it was with uh, a lot of reluctance, but we, my wife and I uh, prayed and invited God to uh, make clear his desire and his direction. And, um, you know, it was just affirmed in a lot of different ways. And one of them was when I shared with uh, the leadership at Convoy, Hal Donaldson, a man who's been a tremendous mentor and friend to me who I respect, uh, I think just about as much as you can respect anyone. Um, you know, he was just so quick to affirm and said, Dan, we're not losing you, we're launching you, and uh, invited me to serve on the Convoy of Hope Foundation Board, uh, where I do. Convoy's still a client, as I mentioned, of Westfall Gold, so I still get to be a part of serving Convoy, just from a different seat, of course. And frankly, Carrie, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. Hmm. So Convoy does incredible, and you can do a better bio than me, but they do incredible relief work around the world. So when there's a tornado, a natural disaster, uh, they're often first on the scene, last to leave. That's true of war zones and everything. But they also do sustainable development, like projects that are not crisis-based. So do incredible work. Westfall Gold helps not-for-profits and churches raise money, right? Just so people have a framework of of jumping from A to B. so you took over as CEO at Westfall Gold. It's been, you and I have had a few meals along the way. It's been mm-hmm. a rocket ride of stratospheric growth in the past two years. It really has. Yeah. So can you give us an idea of some of the strategies and principles that have contributed to this t- tremendous quick rise uh, in this new season for you and for Westfall? Yeah. So just the little bit of background that's helpful. Um, Westfall Gold is uh, 21 years old. Uh, so we've got a, a strong foundation that we're building on. Um, and what we do is we leverage the power of gathering to inspire transformational generosity. We're specifically helping our clients engage major givers, uh, high net worth and ultra high net worth families. 
And we've served hundreds of nonprofits, all shapes and sizes, over the last couple decades, um, nonprofits, ministries, churches. And we've developed expertise in creating experiences that are incubators for deepening trust and building community, leading to extraordinary giving. It's commonly understood, Carrie, in the major donor fundraising space that it takes roughly 18 months to move a person from, hi, my name is Dan, to here's your first major gift. And we are able to accelerate that relationship cultivation cycle to just three and a half days through our, our flagship model. Wow. And um, it's really been marvelous. That, that was the experience that we had at Convoy of Hope when I was a client. We saw how this model, when leveraged well, could really change the, change the game, change the picture dramatically for an organization. And uh, we had such tremendous success. I think that was kind of in the end what uh, stirred my heart to take the leap was this was an opportunity to help dozens, uh, hundreds ultimately of organizations experience the same success that we did. And uh, we've, we just recently celebrated $2 billion uh, raised to fuel life transformation. Uh, took us 17 years, you know, the acceleration you're talking about, took us 17 years to reach that first billion, but it only took us four years to reach the second billion. And there was a pandemic in the middle of that uh, where events weren't real popular. So it's, um, it, it, there's definitely kind of a hockey stick uh, effect right now. We've, in the last two years, we've more than doubled our staff, we've doubled revenue, and we're getting ready to do it again. Uh, to double again in the next two years. We're positioning for growth so that we can have greater impact. We're launching new products. You know, we're just, we're not satisfied. Two billion is awesome, but it's not enough. We've got a, a vision to be a catalyst for generosity that touches every person on earth. That's our North Star. And that's $2 billion raised for worthy causes. That's causes, right. often Christian causes, et cetera, which yes. is good. And it's something... I'm sure we'll get to this story at some point in the podcast, but like it's something a lot of people may not have thought about. For example, why is you version free? That's a great question, right? Mm-hmm. Like who funds yeah. that? Because they've their they're, they've got a whole team, and you don't pay a penny. And where does that come from? Now I know the answer to that question. I don't want to go into all the details today, but there's all kinds of philanthropic work for nonprofits, for churches, for charitable organizations that goes on behind the scenes. And yes, there's you know, crowdsourcing and $20 here and $50 there. But a lot of that is actually raised through, as you say, ultra high net worth individuals, people who, some of whom have signed the Bill Gates, Warren Buffett pledge of giving away 50% of their income, others who are just doing it. And I think the reason, one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation, Dan, and we've tackled this in different forms before, but so many people who lead churches, charities, nonprofits, they don't know how to approach high net worth individuals. And most churches have a top giver. Well, everybody by definition is a top giver, but there's probably also so much money on the sidelines and church leaders just have no idea to access that. So can you give us just a brief overview because you do events-based fundraising for these top donors of what a typical event for that you facilitate at Westfall could look like? Because most churches don't do these. And most yeah. small not-for-profits, they never think about it other than, I'm going to send out that email, you know, and I'm going to ask you for your donation, or we're going to make an announcement, 
or we'll do a direct mail campaign, but they never go beyond that. So do you want to talk about events and how that can shape the giving profile of people who love to donate to worthy causes? Sure. So, you know, again, we're really focused on on major donors, um, people that are able to give at a at a significant level and significant. So do you have a cutoff? Is, like, what do you mean by that? Like, roughly ballpark. Yeah. So most of our clients are aiming to engage families that could give fifty thousand dollars or more a year to support right. their ministry or organization. Um. You know, there's an ROI equation that uh, needs to remain intact regardless of what donor segment you're trying to reach. It's good stewardship uh, to invest uh, significant dollars in spending time and building relationship with people whom God has entrusted significant resources with. Um, everything is birthed out of relationship. You're You're not going to put a team member on a plane and fly them across the country to have lunch with somebody who's giving $500 a year. That obviously doesn't make sense. But in this respect, with this audience, what we're doing is we're inviting people together to a a, a resort-based uh, location, typically somewhere in North America. And we're going to do a, a three-night gathering typically. And I say typically because all shapes and sizes, weekends, mm-hmm. weeknights, week-long, Uh, We do land-based, we do cruises. We're open to curating whatever kind of experience is going to be the best fit for our client and their audience. But we're taking taking those guests on a journey over those few days. Our goal is to uh, create a compelling case for support and deliver that in creative ways. Uh, We want to build community. That, That is one of the most undersold we hear from our clients uh, that they'll tell us that is one of the most undersold benefits of the event uh, experiences that we create is the community building that takes place because you you end up growing a family of supporters around your mission and around your organization and you know people want to invest with a winner but they also want to be part of a winning team. Nobody wants to feel like they are funding the whole thing all by themselves. And when they look around the room and they see other people who are like them, who have experienced similar or maybe even greater success, and those people are choosing to be a part of this, it's just an affirmation that they're on the right track and, and that they are they're part of a team. Uh, there are smart people looking at this uh, intently and asking good questions, and they're deciding it's worthy, and they're investing, and they want to be part of that. Um, so building community and then really inspiring, making uh, making a transformational case, because that's what moves the that's what moves the giving needle. We we talk about making an intellectual case for support, an emotional case for support, but the transformational case it's the story of life change. You're usually talking about big numbers connected with bold vision. We want to change the world. But what does that look like in one person's life? And we want to uh, tell a story of the transformation that occurs. And of course, you can transpose that, uh, you know, add zeros, and then you start to get an idea. Wow, if we did this for one, if we did this for a thousand, if we did it for a hundred thousand, that's how you change the world. Hmm. Okay, so I want to break that down a little bit and get to the elephant in the room, the objection that I'm sure a number of people listening to this already have. So for a little bit of context, I think it's fair that maybe not every church, but a lot of churches, you'd be surprised at the capacity of at least one or two people, if not a handful of people, have to give at the $50,000 a year level, 
Fair enough. I mean, at a tithe, that's a half million a year. Probably somebody runs a business in your church that could be generating that kind of income. And if not, you know, once you're making multiple six figures, 50,000 isn't like 10% is not as sacrificial as it is when you're making 25,000 a year. That's a real sacrifice. At $250,000 a year, 10% is not the sacrifice. Uh, so just a bit of context. But then I got to ask the question, Dan, that you probably get. I get it all the time on my channel. Hey, 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 that's favoritism. Have you not read the Bible? Like, what about the widow's might? What about, aren't you showing partiality to the rich? Have you not read the book of James, et cetera, et cetera? When I post this stuff on my social, I get all of those quotes and then <laughs> some, and a lot of other thoughts. Uh, what do you say to that? Like, how is this not just favoritism or catering to the wealthy? Yeah, it, it's not favoritism. It's stewardship. It would be irresponsible if you had an opportunity to invite, I'll use uh Bill Gates as an example. I don't know Bill Gates. Disclaimer there, but he's right. obviously well known for his wealth and his philanthropy. If you had an opportunity to invite Bill Gates to invest in your your church, your organization, whatever your mission is, would you just send him a letter? No. You would do whatever you had to do. You'd bear whatever expense you had to bear in order to get an audience. Uh, and you would put your best case, your best presentation, you would, you would be in person no matter what it takes. And that's, if you didn't, if all you did was send a letter, I would argue that's bad stewardship. That's bad stewardship of opportunity. And it's also, it's, you know, when people are giving at that level, you're honoring them as, as key stakeholders. Uh, those are people whom God has entrusted with significant resources. They are a steward of those resources. You are a steward of vision. And faithfulness is bringing those two things together and creating as much proximity as possible. And I promise you, if you are not trying to engage the people who have capacity in your audience, others definitely are. And the number one reason that people give is because they are asked. And if you're not asking, somebody else is. That leads me into my second question, which I've also heard, um, which is, you know, voiced at different times. So somebody's wealthy. Why do you even have to ask them to give? Like, why don't they just, because God has blessed them, why don't they just give a meaningful, sacrificial portion away without being asked? Probably because somebody, I, I just, I don't, I don't understand, uh, I don't understand the expectation of somebody parting with their hard-earned money without somebody making a invitation or making a making a compelling case. Because uh, again, it, it just real world. Somebody who's got somebody who's got those resources is being approached by countless uh, organizations, by countless causes, and they have the the difficult job of. If, if stewardship matters, and, and I believe it does, uh, people want to invest their hard-earned money where it's going to make the greatest impact. They're trying to delineate between not just the good, but the great opportunities. And uh, I have a great respect for people who take philanthropy uh, seriously. And uh, our clients, you know, that's, that's a part of what we're helping them uh, accomplish is making the the very best case, the most compelling case, what's going to happen when you entrust a dollar, a hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars to this organization? Yeah. Is there a certain sense in which 
stewarding the gift of giving, like philanthropy, is there a sense in which that is also discipleship? I'm thinking about a few dinners I've had with leaders who would be in that category of people with significant means, able to give more than $50,000 a year, who honestly, when you really ask them, they're like, you know, I, I just didn't have a vision for that. I didn't grow up in a home mm-hmm. where people gave that. And, you know, yeah. they're being courted perhaps by other charities. But if you look at the narrative in the media, you look at the media and the narrative in the culture, the culture is buy that other house, get that nice car, go on that great vacation, right? So there's a sense in which, you know, if you're not casting a vision for them, they're getting a vision on how to spend 100% on themselves from others. Like, have you seen that where they're like, nobody's taught me this stuff. Like, I didn't know giving was a gift. I, I had dinner last summer with a couple uh, really smart people. And they're like, yeah, I didn't even realize this was a spiritual gift. No idea. Yeah. <laughs> no, okay. 100%. Andy Stanley's got this great line. He calls it the consumption assumption. This mm. assumption that everything that comes our way is for our consumption. And he talks about it being a, a necessary step in our spiritual growth and our discipleship um, and in, in our progress towards living a life of generosity that we have to get over, get past the consumption assumption. Real thing. Mm. Uh, That is such a great phrase. Tony and I talked about this at different times in our life. And even, you know, we're, we're doing okay these days, but like in the days where we were just poor students barely scraping by, it's like not everything that came our way is solely for our benefit. It's just not, it's just not, it's not, it's not actually just for us. All right. Um, so I want to talk about breaking down the difference between what a donor thinks and how a church leader thinks. Because I hear from church leaders every day who are sick of leading broke churches. Now, some of them have a broke mindset. So let's start with the broke mindset. What are some characteristics? And, I, you know, there are affluent people who have a broke mindset. There are broke people who have a broke mindset. Uh, what are you learning? What are some insights you can share with leaders about a broke mindset, where it comes from and how to deal with it. Yeah. When I hear those words, uh, I, I think scarcity mindset, we Mm -hmm. often talk about Mm -hmm. living with an abundant abundance mindset or a scarcity mindset. And I think that's where my, my mind initially goes. And my belief is, let's go there. Yeah. My, my belief is that when we live with a scarcity mindset, we never reach our potential. We're led by fear instead of faith. And scripture tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. I think without faith, it's also impossible to reach your potential. Personally, collectively, organizationally, that, that's a real thing. You know, scarcity, the scarcity mindset is that there's not enough resources that it's eventually going to run out. And the mm-hmm. abundance mindset is that we have access to all that we need. And for our faith-based uh, listeners and leaders, that that should absolutely be our our perspective in, in leadership. That if we are living out the calling, if we are following the mission, the assignment that God has given us, then through Him we have access to all that we need. We should live and lead boldly and with courage and with the belief that if God has supplied the vision, he will supply the provision. Hmm. Okay. Have you ever, it's interesting. I got this question last week in the Art of Leadership Academy. Someone was saying, how do we turn non-givers into givers? And my answer was, 
That's a tough one. I have had more success turning a occasional giver into a generous giver, like not turning them into that. I don't have that power, but coaching them and encouraging them and discipling them to become more generous than turning a non-giver into a giver. Any thoughts for leaders who are in the trenches and maybe they're saying, hey, I haven't got a high net worth individual in my church. I just need to turn non-givers into givers or givers into generous givers. What advice would you give them? if, you know, just in the ordinary everyday of giving in a local context? Two things. Number one, everybody has got resources sitting in the rows, the audience of their church. We did a a study just in this last year. We looked at all of our clients and we looked at uh, a number of years. We, We collect data on everything, Carrie. And we found that looking across all sectors, all sizes, all these organizations that we've been serving for the last handful of years, that only 11% of the people in their donor files who have the capacity to give at a major donor level were actually doing so. Whoa. Everybody is, everybody's on the search, like outside their four walls for more major givers, but 89% opportunity already in their file. It's already there. And that's one of the services that we provide our clients. We'll do a screening of their file even before we enter a contract because we don't want to we don't want to uh, take somebody on that we don't believe we can help become successful. But um, helping people understand who is already in their network is one of the steps, uh, one of the services that we provide. And, you know, that's that is just, uh, it's unbelievable um, to me. I had the same reaction, Gary, when I, I was delivered that report. Yeah. It was, whoa. And I think, uh, you know, one of the misconceptions too is people think, you know, that high income earner is your mm-hmm. next million dollar donor. You know, the, the attorney, the, uh, the doctor. The reality is though that your, um, your philanthropic free agents of... Uh, the donor world, the like LeBron James, who can take their mm-hmm. talents to South Beach or anywhere they want. Um, they're the business owners. And the guy in your church who runs the plumbing company and has 30 employees can probably do more for you in terms of giving than the attorney who's uh, driving the brand new Mercedes in your parking lot. Fascinating. All right. So you're saying, and this is, this is, this is gold. 89% of people who have the capacity to give at a significant level don't do it. That's right. Did, any theories or thoughts on why that's the case? We've sort of gone there already, but I'd like to make sure that there's nothing under that rock before we move on. Why, why are yeah. 89% untapped? It's simply because they're not being effectively engaged. That's it. That's it. Um, at least I think that accounts for the majority. I'm going to give benefit of the doubt that Some people, inevitably, some people are not going to give even though they could simply because their heart's not there. They're not- Yeah, hard hearts or other thoughts. Whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Or or they're giving somewhere else. They're not giving to you and, you know, God's using them to fund something else and, you know, good for them. God bless them. Don't, uh, Don't take it personal. But point is there's tons of room for growth and opportunity within- organizations, churches, own audience of donors within their own donor file. Um, and to answer your question, um, discipleship, how do, you, how do you get somebody to become a giver? 
It's discipleship within a Christian context, within a church context anyways. It's discipleship. (laughs) Your listeners probably know all the same scriptures I do about about money, what the Bible has to say, what Jesus had to say about money and stewarding and being generous and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's that, that all of that comes through in how we spend our money and, and what we, how we steward what we've been entrusted with. There's so many one-liners that come to mind, you know, show me your checkbook and I'll show you your priorities. Um, all of those things ring true. Where your money is, there your heart is. So I think the default for most leaders at the local level is to send out that email, to stand up on stage and make the announcement to do the sermon series. Uh, if you're advanced, send the text and just hope it all comes in. And I think underneath, and of course, it never does the way they hope. And I think underneath that is a reluctance to engage people personally, Dan. So I would yep. love for you to give us a list of do's and don'ts when you're going to have the conversation, particularly with higher potential donors. What are some do's and don'ts about navigating that conversation? How do you how do you do it well, and what are some things to avoid? Boy, uh, there's a lot that could be unpacked here, and uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple. I'll give you a couple nuggets that top of mind, and then yeah. point you to point you to a resource where you can get the expanded answer. But um, number one, uh, I would say lead with big vision. Uh, don't. Don't go small, go big. People are attracted to big ideas, heroic endeavors. They want to change the world. They want to fix problems. I mean, that's that's how most businesses got started. Was there there was a there was a problem that needed to be solved. There was a hole in the market, a gap in services. People who run and have started businesses, they're problem solvers. So don't be afraid to bring a big problem that needs solving, whatever whatever the need is. Um, assume that they have more, not less, to work with. People with means are very good at hiding it. You only know about their capacity what they want you to know. That's just hard truth. Okay, um, back up and say that again. I want to explore that. I don't want to derail you, but let's go back. You're saying ask for sure. more than... The, Say that again. They're 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 believe, good at hiding. Believe it. that they are capable of doing more. Believe that if you shared bigger vision, you would invite bigger investments. Don't assume that you know what they have to work with. That is a that is a terrible assumption. That is going to not only rob you but rob your cause, rob the kingdom. Um, people and high with net means, worth people are good at hiding it. Yeah, yeah. Be, people with means are good at hiding it. You only know about the resources what they want you to know. Um, okay. So what does that look like? Like, it was funny. I was talking with somebody the other day and, you know, this is an observation, but if you're driving the flight, often the people who look like they have money don't have money. And often the people who have money don't look like they have money. Is that what you're getting at? No, not necessarily. Although that is often true. There are plenty of people that have been blessed with incredible uh, amount of resource, but they choose to live very humbly. They're not caught up in material things. And uh, those are some of the most fun people to engage from a a philanthropic standpoint. Um, I think of uh, a man in uh, the Northeast who 
gives millions and millions of dollars every year. And uh, I've been friends with him for over a decade. He gives millions every year. Uh, he's actually trying to give away all his money uh, before he dies, not after, because he's like, why should somebody else have all that fun? And, uh, you know, he drives he drives a 20-year-old pickup truck because he likes it because <laughs> they don't make them. <laughs> yeah. They don't make them with the like bench seat anymore. And yeah, and... Uh, you know, he doesn't care that it's got 180,000 miles on it. Um, he's not trying to impress anybody. And, you know, so there, there's that. But I think the the point I'm trying to make is don't, you know, somebody gives your church or your organization $50,000 or $100,000 a year, if they've grown to that level of generosity, don't assume that that's all they can give. Don't dismiss them as if, we're already getting all we can get from them. You don't know that. You have no way of proving that. People with resources, they do a very good job of uh, sheltering them. And I, I, I don't mean in any illegal or unethical fashion. I just mean, you know, most people with means, they're not looking to advertise. Um, they might enjoy nice things, drive a nice car, live in a nice house. But they're not looking to advertise by and large, this is how much money I have in the bank. Why would they, why would they disclose that? Um, so my, my point is just don't, don't assume that you know everything about them. Assume that if you invite a um, significant gift that's going to accomplish something world-changing, that they are going to figure out how to resource it to the fullest extent that they can. Any other do's and don'ts? Those are those are the ones that are top of mind here, Carrie. Yeah, I mean, I, l- let me use this as an opportunity. Uh, one of the one of the new products. Maybe we'll talk about this later, but I'll just briefly yeah. mention it. One of the new products that we're uh, bringing to market um, here in January is a masterclass uh, video series that. Uh, grateful that you're a part of it. Uh, Craig Rochelle, Chris Hodges, Ashley Woldridge from Christ Church of the Valley in Phoenix. Uh, we partnered with some of the best uh, church leaders we know to create a resource for pastors and church leaders to help them grow both the courage and the skill to unleash generosity in their church. And one of the modules in that masterclass is about effectively engaging major givers. And I unpack a lot of a lot of different do's and don'ts and uh, get not just strategy, but tactics uh, to equip leaders with some information, some understanding around best practice. It was a wonderful project to be involved in, and we'll talk about it a little bit more at the end. But uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to see the finished product because you've got so many incredible leaders involved with that. But I'm excited for that masterclass. What about um, the personal meeting? So whether it's in a group setting or you're taking a donor out for dinner, a lot of church leaders and leaders get nervous at that time, even if you're trying to raise money for your nonprofit or something like that. And you're like, oh, do I talk about money? Do I not talk about money? Any pro tips on how to engage that personal one-on-one conversation? Sure. And it comes down to perspective, uh, I think. You know, the most essential ingredient here is courage. It is, it is the single it is the single most uh, important ingredient, in my opinion, for a leader or any individual who's going to engage in fundraising. I had, uh, had an opportunity to be mentored for a, a short period by Peb Jackson, 
who was really a, a legend in uh, the ministry and nonprofit world, raised uh, you know just oodles of money. God used him to connect um, givers who had just tremendous resources with a number of organizations. And uh, I remember there was a season where I was responsible when I was uh, working at Convoy of Hope, uh, one of their leaders in development, and I was responsible for hiring major gift uh, reps and. He told me, Dan, the number one most important trait you need to hire for is courage because mm. rejection is inevitable. And that's why pastors are afraid. That's why people are afraid. It's because people are going to, there's a chance and there's maybe a good chance. I don't know. Uh, depends on the person, the ask, the relationship. There's a lot of, you got to d- deliver the right ask at the right time, the right way to the right person, all the, all the rights, right? Mm-hmm. But courage because rejection is always an option and nobody wants to be rejected. So I say perspective, um, meaning remember your place, that this isn't about you. You're an ambassador. You're a voice for the voiceless in that moment. And they're not rejecting you if they say no. They're just not bought into the idea. But don't make it personal is the point there. Um, you are being a steward of vision. Be faithful to that. Let it's, it's up to them to be faithful as the steward of resource, but you need to be faithful as the steward of vision. Uh, you also need to be, I think, coming from a heart place where you want more for them than from them. And that's a big deal. If you are effectively engaging major givers, you're building purposeful relationship. You have developed a, a love and a care for them as a person. You, you're, you, I mean, you shouldn't even be asking them for money if what you're asking for doesn't connect with their heart. You should know that. You should have enough relationship with this person where this isn't transactional, it's relational. And man, that is, that is 100% of major gift fundraising. And even through our event models, we're cultivating relationship. I talked earlier about community building. We're trying to deepen that sense of relationship in an accelerated time period so that people get to that line where they say, okay, I trust and I want to invest. And wanting more for them than from them is all the joy and blessing that comes with being a generous person. You have to want for them the joy that's going to come from moving from success to significance to using their hard-earned resources to make a transformational impact in the lives of others. There's a joy that they are going to experience. It's why, it's why we're, we're told in Scripture it's more blessed to give than to receive. You have to want that blessing for them more than you want their money from them. And they can tell the difference. People who've got money, they've got really good BS meters, Carrie. And they, <laughs> yeah. they, they can tell if you care about them or if you just care about getting their money from them. And if they feel the latter, it's, you know, it's game over. Um, words matter in those conversations. So practice your, you should, you should think long and hard and pray about how am I going to articulate this? Words matter. So go into that conversation prepared. It's a crucial conversation. Um, and then the end is, man, just do it. Just do it. Just Get those words out of your mouth. Make the ask. It, you know, like anything, you're going to get better the more you use that muscle. Uh, you never hit the ball if you don't swing the bat. So just let it out. I think you've hinted at this already, but one of the great fears pastors have is, you know, I sit down with you, Dan, and I'm like, all right, we have this big project or mission or 
expansion or new campus or whatever. And we make the ask and we're afraid the whole thing is going to blow up and you're going to leave the church mad or whatever. And you've, you've partially answered that already, but let's just say it's not the right season. It's not the right pitch. And you decide not to give. What It's got to be disappointing, right? Sure. For me as a leader, what are some tips? Because that, that happens, I'm sure, a, a small percentage of the time, even at your events. You throw these great events and not 100% of the people give. Yeah, that's How right. do you preserve the relationship and what do you do when somebody doesn't respond to that cause? Is all lost or do you continue or what, what, what goes on after that? No, it's a, it's a great question. You're, you, want to, you want to explore the objections. You want to understand why, what, what resonated, what didn't. You want to understand maybe, maybe it is seasonal. Maybe they're going through something in their life or in their business and this is not, this is not the right time, but they'll tell you, hey, come back to us next year or come back to us in six months. It, it wouldn't be prudent for us to make this decision now, but um, we're, we're all for what you're doing. That's great. You know, you learn something there. That's helpful. Um, so you, you want to hear the objections, but ultimately, if the answer is no, man, I want to get to the no as quickly as I can because I know there's a yes waiting for me. And I think... I. Resil- resiliency is fueled by that belief that, again, through a faith filter, that if if this is God's mission, if this is if this is something He has called me us to do, if it matters to Him, He's He's gonna supply the resource. And if I have to get ten no's in order to get to that one yes, I kind of want to get through those ten no's as fast as I can. And I almost get excited at a certain point because I know that I'm getting closer to that yes. It's out there. There's no question. And uh, and I remember meeting a donor uh, years ago, man in uh, New York City who uh, owned a very large company, thousands of employees. He's the he's the one sole owner, and uh, had given a a nice gift. And, uh, I was responsible for going and and doing the follow-up and, uh, you know, trying to build some relationship and see if, see if there was something there that we could, we could grow. And, uh, he was very generous, hosted me in his office, um, spent an hour with me, which I thought signaled a lot of interest because this is a a Mm -hmm. busy man. And so he was very kind, but we get towards the end and, uh, you know, I, I asked him why did, why did he give? And is this something that, uh, you know, he's passionate about? I'm trying to suss that out. And, and he says, you know, I, I gave because it uh, makes my employees feel good uh, to see that the company is given to those kind of causes. And I'm like, okay, well, that was honest. Um, and he, he said, there's, there's really, really two things that I like to give to. And uh, one was the organization that uh, his wife serves on the board uh, a children's hospital, and then the other was the um, Metropolitan Opera because he likes the tickets, and uh, you know that that's about as far as his philanthropic interest went. And, you know, I I kind of laughed, uh, and I at the same time I, I felt like man, I owe this guy a big thank you because I could have spent months trying to uh, court a a another gift or a, a larger gift, but that's not where he was at. It, and he was honest about that with me. And so then I got to move on. And I would encourage uh, people, leaders who are engaging into it. Not everybody's going to give. Not everybody's there. Um, not everybody's heart is oriented towards your cause. That's okay. 
Don't, don't take it personal. Don't make it personal. Just keep moving forward. Know that your yes is on its way. No has no power over you unless you give it power. No has no power over you. So that's a great example of like getting to a no so you can move on. What would happen if that person was a member of your church? It's just like, no, nah, I give to these two courses or two causes. I'm not going to give to the church. How do you how do you keep the relationship in a small community where you might run into that person again and again? What do you any tips for leaders on that? I go back to the uh, for and from. I well, I still want I still want more for them than from them. Would I love if they um, if they weren't just a consumer and they were a contributor to what we're doing here at the church? Yes, of course, I would love that. But first and foremost, as a pastor, as a leader, I want for that person to grow in relationship with Jesus. And I know that when that happens, as that happens, eventually that wall is going to fall because God is going to going to change their heart. And that's going to be fun to watch. And I, I hope I'm there when it happens. That's going to be awesome. But I, I'm not dissuaded in any way because I want more for that person than I want from them. I'd love to touch on, before we wrap up, a couple of um, principles, strategies, ideas around gathering a community. This is something we started doing about a decade ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, at Connexus Church, even when I was still lead pastor. And it was really powerful. And to your point, I remember one of the first gatherings, we were doing a major ask, and I had one of our key donors pull me aside, and he said, I'm just glad to know I'm not alone. Because that was a question I had, right? Am I the only one giving at a sacrificial level? And it's not like everybody was sliding pieces of paper across the table saying, I'm giving this or you give. No, we didn't do that. But he's like, oh, these people are in too. What are, what are some do's and don'ts if you're going to gather your donors and do it in a really effective way? Yeah, you know this is this is what we've been doing for twenty years, uh, over over five hundred and fifty events, and there is a strong why behind every what. There is a methodology in everything that we do. We are creating an environment where it's about the person, it's it's about the mission, and it's really not about the money until the very end. And we allow that to be a very private and a personal decision. This is not a raise your hand who will give a hundred thousand dollars uh, kind of deal this is a this is a sincere um, your being here is not contingent upon your giving if you give we're gonna be thrilled if you don't we thank you just the same for the opportunity to to share our vision it it comes from that heart place at the very beginning and people respond well to that you are taking a first step it's a friendship first priority you are being faithful to steward the vision, to communicate the case for support in the most compelling ways, stories, videos. You know, we, we write all the scripts, Carrie, for our clients. We make this as, as turnkey as possible. We help them figure out how to tell their own story. And, and then it culminates with, all right, you've heard it. You've heard it all. We've, we've made our best case. Now, would you prayerfully consider the impact that you want to make? And we found that Working with those best practices, it's seventy-five percent participation rate at our events. Uh, you know, l- l- looking over the last ten years, and so it's proven, and uh, it works for organizations, all shapes and sizes, uh, ministries, churches, nonprofits—you name it. 
Mm. So uh, as we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about the course that we put together, the master class. So from uh, one standpoint, I was pretty, you tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, uh, thinking of doing this. And then you told me who else was involved. And I'm like, how did you get Craig and, you know, Ashley Woolridge and Chris Hodges and others to step forward and do this? Like that's, that's a, that's a tough thing. So uh, any thoughts on how you pulled that faculty together? And I was honored to be a part of it. Yeah, and, and you did great. I'm excited for uh, leaders to uh, benefit from the the content that you presented, Kerry. Yeah, you know, it's uh, friendship and and mission. Um, uh, grateful to have had the opportunity to develop friendship with the the guys that you mentioned, and um, this is a this is a resource that all acknowledged was needed in the in the church world in particular. And uh, they were eager to lend their lend their voice, and uh, it's it's a phenomenal product. Really proud of uh, what has come together, and I think it's going to be a tremendous help to to pastors around the country. The you know the the vision for it was really birthed out of my personal story, Carrie. Before uh, Westfall Gold, before Convoy of Hope, I was a pastor for a handful of years, six seven years. At uh, my father's church, uh, he pastored a church outside uh, suburban Philadelphia for about 20 years. And coming out of college, I served on his staff and did all the things that an associate pastor does, which is everything, you know, at that age. Yeah, yeah. And uh, somewhere, you know, ripe age of 24, uh, around there, I had a, had a big idea, a, a big vision for a new ministry initiative. And my father allowed me an opportunity to present that vision to the board. And, and they love what they heard. They were excited, but they said, Dan, you know, ultimately th- this is awesome, but we don't have the money to fund this. And I naively uh, responded by asking the question, well, if I raise the money, then can we do it? And I'd never, I'd never really raised money before. I was just, you yeah. know, audacious 24-year-old. And uh, they kind of collectively shrugged and said, sure. So in a matter of just a few weeks, God put a businessman in my path uh, from our church who took a liking to me and he had a heart for that kind of ministry. And he said, Dan, I'll write that check. And in that moment, it was like an epiphany. Um, In that moment, I realized that there is no lack of resources in God's kingdom. There's simply a lack of leaders who are skillful and willing to ask for them. And in that moment, I found my calling. And the trajectory of my life changed. And I didn't immediately go into fundraising, but everything that I put my hand to, every every project that I was a part of, that I had any leadership in, I was unafraid to seek out and to ask for the resources that we needed to do what God had called us to do. And uh, that is, that's the heart of the, the project. And I think sharing that story with, with Craig and, and with Chris and kind of the heartbeat there, you know, everybody was quick to get on board and say, absolutely. Um, so I'm grateful for partners and friends who, who want the same and have invested their time and created a resource that is going to do just that, help pastors grow the courage and skill to unleash generosity in their churches. All these guys, you know, I, I know you look at Church of the Highlands or Life Church or CCV, you know, they're at massive scale and they can seem unrelatable, but all of these guys, you know, they've done it. Yes, they've arrived at, at scale, but they've been where you are. If you're leading a church um, that is mobile, that's in a school or a gymnasium, if you're meeting in a house or a garage, 
they've been there. They went on that journey. They can relate. And so to have an opportunity to, to learn from them and gain wisdom from their experience, I think it's tremendous. Can't wait to see uh, how God uses it. And where do you find the course? What's the website or easy place? Westfallgold.com. W-E-S-T-F-A-L-L gold.com. You'll see links there. We call the project Advance because this is not about raising money. This is about advancing vision, advancing ministry, advancing the kingdom of God. Cool. Anything else we did not cover that you want to touch on or anything you didn't say that you'd like to say? Just thank you to you again for using your voice and your platform to uh, build the church, to advance the kingdom and to grow leaders. I'm grateful. Well, it's calling, man. Um, I'm honored and thrilled that I'm able to do it. And Dan, really grateful for your friendship and the ways we get to partner together in different things. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Gary. Well, I hope you enjoyed that deep dive. Hey, we've got uh, links to everything we talked about in the show notes at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 631. We also have transcripts for you and that's free. We just love to do it for you. If you enjoyed this episode, would you do us a favor and would you share and subscribe? I tend to listen to the podcasts I subscribe to. And if you share it, that helps us get the best guests possible for this show. And we've got some good ones I'm going to tell you about in just a moment. And hey, if you haven't yet checked out the Art of Leadership Academy, it is the place you can turn to for advice about church leadership, growth, and all the thorny issues you don't really have a lot of people to talk to about. I host a community of growth-minded leaders and they are great. You can tap into their collective wisdom as well as you'll get my opinion as well. Go to theartofleadershipacademy.com or click the link in the description of this episode and then check out Overflow Plus Tap. Your church can tap their phone against the seat in front of them and be transported to the page of your choosing from your giving page to a digital connect card. It's 50x more powerful than manual cards or QR codes combined. Go to overflow.co slash carry to learn more or visit the link in the description. Well, I'm excited about the next episode. We have Jamie Kern Lima on, and we're going to talk about the difference between self-worth and self-confidence. It's a powerful conversation. Don't want you to miss it. Craig Rochelle has dropped so many wisdom bombs. He's up soon as well. Cal Newport's coming back. Jenny Allen, Tim Stevens, Shauna Pilgreen, Willie and Corey Robertson, George Camel, John Tyson, and a whole lot more coming up on the podcast. Very excited to deliver this to you. And again, thank you for being the most generous audience I know. Uh, when you share this, and I hear from podcast listeners every day, you make this show possible. Uh, you get us out there, you get us noticed, and I'm so grateful. And did you know, I've got all kinds of free stuff for you as well. If you haven't checked out my On The Rise newsletter, it's delivered every Friday, easy to subscribe, easy to unsubscribe. I feature some of the most curious content I've found and helpful content about faith, culture, and the future church, like how the term evangelical is being used. You know that 40% of evangelicals don't even go to church? Well, you'll learn that if you're on my newsletter or an app that actually helps you look at a Lego bucket and determine based on the pieces that you have how you could build something new. You know, if you got bored kids or you're an adult Lego lover, uh, that's a really cool thing. Also, book recommendations every week and a whole lot more. There's so much noise on the internet. This newsletter is designed to help you cut through it and find some of the most important and interesting things. 
So just go to ontherisenewsletter.com and you can get curated content about faith, culture, the future church, and more, or click the link in this episode. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I hope our time together today has helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing.